Well, take out your Bible again, and let's turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 1. And we will be looking today at verses 1 through 14. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, Who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers. The flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. What glorious truths. We pray, O God, for this, your your servant, that justice can be done to this magnificent text. That we would learn from it. That we may give you all glory in it. That we could praise you, O God, for you have done what you are doing. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great benefits to this time of year uh, for a preacher, and really for any Christian, is that we get the opportunity to spend some time contemplating the wonders of the incarnation of our Savior Jesus. Now, the past several weeks, we've been looking at Uh, the various promises which are found in Isaiah. A promise of a sign. A child born of a virgin. This one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, whose government shall have no end. This one who is the shoot which issues forth from the stump of Jesse, who will bring peace, ultimate peace, And also this one who provides living water. The Holy One of Israel who gives nourishing food without price. And these are but a brief snapshot of the Old Testament promises which are given anticipating the coming of the Messiah and King. And so today we are looking at the fulfillment of those promises and the anticipation of the final fulfillment on the last day as we look at this first chapter in John's Gospel. Now, when John wrote his Gospel, you'll notice 
that he doesn't provide a birth narrative like some of the others do. Instead, he focuses on this truth which is summarized in four simple words in verse 14. Ha, logos, sark, agento. The Word became flesh. These four words are a beautiful and simple description of the reality that God entered into His creation taking on human flesh. The Word became flesh. He came into this world being born as a man. This truth, the birth of Christ, is essential to the Christian faith. Without this singular fact, there is no Christian faith. God had to come onto the scene to bring about redemption for His people. And so what we're looking at today is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The coming of the one who was to save his people from their sins. And so, God, and so John opens his gospel with these words in verse 1 in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. John opens his gospel not with the birth narrative of Jesus, not with the genealogy of Jesus, such as Matthew or Luke. Does, but he looks back even further. He looks back to the very beginning. In eternity past, the words in the beginning, of course, reminds any reader of the Old Testament's uh, opening and the opening verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the scriptures themselves open with the account of creation. All things were made by God. They were spoken into their existence. But before there was the cosmos, before there was any, anything, there was God. God has always been, and there has never been a time when He was not. You see, creation is the beginning of the world. That is to say, it's our beginning. But before this world, before the universe was created, there was God and the Word. And so the Gospel of John opens by magnificently displaying the life of Christ before this world even was. Jesus, the Son of God, was in the beginning with God the Father because He is God. That becomes very clear in this passage. Which then is to say that John's purpose here is to highlight the true divinity of Christ, even as we talk of his humanity. From all eternity past, God the Son enjoyed infinite delight and blessedness in the presence of God the Father. He existed from all time with the Father and the Spirit in perfect harmony and perfect unity. Now, understanding this truth, the eternal existence of the Son, helps us to grasp more fully the condescending love of Christ as He humbles Himself, as He comes into the world, taking on human flesh, humbling Himself even to the point of death on the cross. 
And so before there was a universe, before there was this planet, there was the Word of God, and that Word was with God. Look at the middle of verse 1. The Logos, the Word, clearly existed before the creation of the world. Now this is the most uh, basic grammar of the text here. But John not only says the Word was in the beginning with God, but the Word was God. So not only do we have the pre-existence of the world, but John makes clear the divine nature of the Word. The eternal Word is God. He is God. And then verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. So John further clarifies his statement. The eternal Word is God and at the same time with God. Are you guys following along with this? This is important. Because what John is saying is that there is a unity and a distinction within the Godhead. And so again, the Word is the eternal is eternal and one true God, and yet at the same time also distinct because He is with God. Notice the emphasis of John's Gospel here. Jesus Christ is fully God. He has existed from all eternity as a distinct person, a person who has eternally been with God the Father, and yet is himself, is himself God, united as the one true God, with the Father and the Spirit. Christ created all that there is and has himself always been. Therefore, Jesus is not a created being as certain cults and heretical groups want to claim. No, Christ has always enjoyed perfect, loving fellowship with the Father. And so what we're seeing here are some of the crucial components in understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. So very quickly we can note that Christ is the Word of God in two respects. First, He reflects perfectly the mind of God and He reveals God to men. Which is also to say that the words and deeds of Jesus are the words and deeds of God. Notice too, this Word who was with God and was God is also the Creator. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that God spoke creation into existence. Everything came because He called it into being by His Word. The sun, the moon, the planets, stars, plants, animals, humanity. The Word, you see, is eternal and powerful in the beginning with God, before all creation, and is Himself the Creator. And so the agent, the agent of creation is the Word, and there is nothing in the whole universe which exists apart from Him having made it. Christ Jesus, the eternal Word, created all things. 
And to strengthen this point even more, John expresses it both positively and negatively. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All things came through Christ. Now, this, this idea, by the way, is not unique to John. This theme of creation is common throughout the New Testament. Uh, consider for a moment Colossians chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, which says, For by him all things were created. This is speaking of Christ. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, which says the Son was appointed the heir of all things and He created the world. And Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning from all eternity past with the Father, created all things as the eternal and powerful Word of God. This, beloved congregation, is who was born in that tattle stall to the Virgin Mary. This is amazing, isn't it? This is incredible. The creator of the universe, born as a man. Wow. Now then, not only is Christ the eternal word and creator of all there is. But look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now these, these two terms, life and light, are almost universal religious symbols. In John's gospel, they're used as a way to focus on the excellencies of the word. In Christ Jesus, there is life. Now, of course, this makes sense because we just, we just talked about the fact that He's the Creator. All life comes from Him. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. Now, there is a parallel to this found in John's Gospel. In John chapter 5 and verse 26, he says, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. So again, there is an identical relationship between the Father and the Word and the Father and the Son, which is found throughout the rest of John's Gospel. Both here in chapter 1 and also in chapter 5, John insists that the Son shares in the self-existing life of the Father and in the eternal nature God the Son. He has life in and of Himself just as God the Father. In other words, God the Son did not have the breath of life breathed into Him as Adam had in creation. He has life in Himself. And John goes on to say that He was the light to men. And what does this mean? What does it mean that He was the light to men. Well, later on in John's Gospel, Jesus says of himself in chapter 8, you know, you, you know this, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Life is eternally in Christ and is a light which shines into the darkened hearts of fallen men bringing spiritual life. Throughout most of this gospel, John uses these two figures, light and life, referring to salvation. Salvation is what is in view. The saving of sinful men from destruction. Life instead of death. Light instead of darkness. But here too, we're talking about creation, which is to say that Christ, who brought the first creation, remember, He created all that there is, Christ, who brought the first creation, is also the one who brings the new creation. As men and women and boys and girls trust and rest in Jesus, their Savior, and are saved from their sins, Christ brings life. And so there's this physical reality, these symbols of light and life, which point then to a spiritual reality. This is seen further in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't this glorious? The darkness cannot overcome it. This is, by the way, the same idea which is expressed in Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So the light of Christ has shone forth into this sin-darkened creation, just as the morning sun drives away the night. What does light do? Light always overcomes the darkness. Light always overcomes the darkness. It could be no other way. Light cannot be chased away by the darkness. Only darkness is chased away by the light. Consider creation for a moment. When the world was formless and void, God made that great declaration. Let there be light. And there was light. Light chased away the darkness. It shined forth out of the darkness as God spoke it into existence. What God did at creation, God does again in salvation. The chaos of this present evil world will be set right by the light, which is Christ. And so the light is not only about creation, the light is about salvation. The darkness of sin cannot overcome the light of Christ's salvation. Light exposes. And that which was in darkness cannot hide when the light comes. Apart from the light brought by the Messiah, the incarnate word, people love darkness because their deeds are wicked. And so when the light makes an appearance, because they are darkened in their heart, there are some who will hate it. They will hate the light. They do not want their wicked deeds and sins exposed. Because they find themselves to be naked and ashamed. They're exposed by the light. Their sins and their evil deeds are exposed. This is why we see in verses 10 and 11 the rejection of the Redeemer by men. 
Nevertheless, it is always true that whenever light shines in darkness, darkness cannot overcome it. Darkness is always defeated by the light, just as the light at creation pushed out the darkness. Just as light does in a darkened room, so too is this true in the spiritual realm. There was to be someone, John says, who would testify to this reality, would testify to this life and this light. It's now at this point in verse 6 that we are introduced to John the Baptist. It was the forerunner to the public ministry of the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, we learn, is the pre-existent Word who was with God and was God. But as the Apostle John accounts for Jesus' public ministry, he must begin with a witness of another. He begins with John the Baptist. John, we read, was sent by God to be a witness of the light so that men may believe. John the Baptist, though he himself was not the light, came to speak of the light. He came to point the world towards the light of life. Now this is seen in in the declaration, in his declaration about Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 29. When Jesus came to him to be baptized, John, seeing him come, says this, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John pointed to Christ. He came as a witness to the one who was the light of the world, the Savior. John came to point to Jesus. This was his purpose. His purpose was to point to the true light. And the true light, which illuminates all, all was coming into the world. The eternal and immeasurable God was entering, had entered into his own creation, having taken on flesh. The light, the true light had come into the world. The light which illuminates every man. Now what does this mean in verse 9? That the true light gives light to everyone. Well, First of all, the phrase gives light has the primary lexical meaning of to shed light or to make visible. What this means is that the light shines on all men, but... But this is here where the human race is divided. There are those who love the light. That's one division. And then there are those who hate the light. Now those who hate the light respond by fleeing from the light. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with the Savior. They do not want their wicked deeds to be exposed by the light. They would prefer to hide in the shadows, to live as they please. God makes too many demands on them. They want nothing to do with that. They would rather be their own Lord. They would rather be their own God. Such as it is as those who hate the light. They will either flee from it or they will attempt to fight against it. This is unbelief at its most basic. But there are also those who love the light. And those who love the light are those who receive this revelation and testify that their deeds have been done through God. 
They give all glory to God and they proclaim His name. They embrace the truth of the gospel because they love the light, because they love Christ. This was the case with John the Baptist and all others who are redeemed by the Savior. The light was shining on every man, man, Jew and Gentile alike, whether men or women. See or acknowledge it. The eternal word has eternal life in bringing light which will shine on all men as he entered into his creation. But not all will receive him though he is the creator. There are those who love the light, those who hate the light. Look at the start verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The evangelist John here summarizes the entire presence of Jesus Christ in the world. The creator, the one who has always been the one who made the world, came into his world. He came into the world that he himself had made. He entered into his own creation, and yet the world did not know him. They did not have a relationship with him. They did not acknowledge him as he is. The world did not recognize the word Because mankind had been alienated from their Creator because they're sinners. They were in active rebellion against the Creator. Sin had, of course, had come into the world because Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This rebellion, this cosmic treason against the Creator separated humanity from their God and has continued since that day in the garden. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the Gentile unbelievers in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, says this, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Beloved, this is the life of all humanity apart from God. Hardened hearts, ignorant of God. Alienated from their Creator. When Jesus came into the world, the world, that is to say, humanity, did not acknowledge Him as Lord. The rebellion of mankind was not abated, but continued among many. Unless someone be tempted to think that surely, surely God's own covenant people received Him. Just as they received uh, all of the promises, right? They received Him. Surely God's covenant people did. John is quick to point out that Jesus had even come to His own covenant people. And it was not only the world that didn't recognize Him, but His own people didn't recognize Him. The people who had been especially set apart for Him. The Jewish nation. The descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The nation from which the promise of salvation had come. They had been waiting for this day to come. These people who had the law and the prophets. 
The wisdom, the deeds of deliverance, judgment, the mercy of God, the people who were blessed with all of the covenant promises. Jesus came to His people and His people did not receive Him because they didn't recognize Him. They didn't know Him. In fact, they rejected Him and they killed Him. Again and again, under the Old Covenant, the prophets describe the obstinance and rebellious nature of the people of God. And beloved, this describes us too, lest we stand in judgment. We too would be obstinate and rebellious. Isaiah chapter 65 says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. This is what God had to say about the covenant people. God's people are described throughout the scriptures as stiff-necked rebellious, and more wicked than their forefathers, and in some cases, more wicked than the nations around them. These are the people that were God's own people. And who had come to, and who, no surprise, rejected Him. But though some rejected their Redeemer... There were others who did not. There were others who believed. By themselves, verses 10 and 11 would be very grim. For they speak of the rejection of the Savior. But even here, there is hope for some. Look at verse 12. Because all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right become children of God. You see, those who receive and trust and rest in Christ as their Savior have become the adopted children of God and enjoy the full privileges of the covenant people. A privilege which had been lost by those who rejected the Messiah, even as they had been the children of Abraham by blood. Romans chapter 8 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This adoption, this new birth by faith in Christ Jesus does not come about by flesh and blood. It's not because you're born into it. Your having been born to believing parents does not save you. Nor is it by the labor and will of men. It's not because you worked really hard and you made it in. You and I cannot save ourselves. And we cannot save one another. It is only by the will of God. God took a rebellious, obstinate, stiff-necked people and transform them into a new creation. In other words, faith is a gift from God. Since we're talking about gifts today, what what better gift Christ was given for you, your faith was given to you. You would otherwise be a hard, 
hard-necked, obstinate person in rebellion against your Creator, and yet you've been made into, assuming you believe and trust in Christ, you've been made into a new creation. We have become children. Not in the ordinary sense, through being born to a mother and a father. You've been born in the Spirit. This introduces us to the concept which John brings up later of being born again. Those who are in Christ have been born again to a new life in Christ and are by adoption made children and heirs of the promise, a covenant people, a people for his own possession. And so spiritual birth is not a matter of the will of the flesh. It's not a matter of human decision. Spiritual birth is nothing other than an act of a holy, righteous, good, and loving God. Well, John finally, in verse 14, speaks of the glory of the Word being incarnate. And this is, this is really where we begin. This is the summary, really, of the whole of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal word who created and sustains the world, who is glorious, was born into this creation. Literally uh, translated here, uh, dwelt among us is he pitched his tabernacle with us. He pitched his tent among us. And this brings to mind the tabernacle erected in the Old Testament that was by God's design and by his command. Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. God gave the pattern. God had his tent pitched with his people. And the flesh of Jesus Christ was the new localization of God's presence on earth. In a very real sense, Jesus is the replacement of the ancient tabernacle. His body is the new location of the divine presence on earth. He is the tabernacle. In the incarnation, the Word took on flesh But this does not mean that he came into existence as if he were a created being himself. No, he has always been from all eternity. The Word is the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God among human beings. Jesus was born of a virgin in a humble estate, lived with and among his people. And the people of God have seen his glory. This brings again to mind the bright cloud of the presence of God which had settled on the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the glory of the Lord filled that place. Exodus 40, And the cloud covered the tent of meaning and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We have seen His glory. This is the picture. Christ is the tabernacle. God is with His people. We have seen the glory The apostles, the disciples, all the eyewitnesses of Jesus in His ministry, they saw His glory. 
And the word translated seen, or in some, in some translations beheld, has the idea of watching. You're watching as if you're in a theater. It's to view something. It's to contemplate it. These were the eyewitnesses of Jesus, the Son of God, as they viewed His whole life. They watched, they wondered, they considered, they, they observed the miracles of Jesus. They, they heard the teachings of Jesus. They witnessed His death on the cross. And they were amazed at His resurrection when Jesus rose again from the dead. They saw Him ascend back to the Father in heaven. The disciples of Jesus Christ beheld His glory. Though we are not eyewitnesses, direct eyewitnesses, you, beloved Christian, have also beheld His glory. Because we believe and rest on Him by faith. And this glory is the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is natural that the only begotten of the Father would exhibit such tremendous glory full of grace and truth because God is full of grace and truth. So John is bearing witness to the fullness of the glory of the Son. But this glory is not revealed to all, but only to those who believe, which are those who God chose to reveal Himself. This becomes more and more clear throughout a reading of, God, of John's Gospel as the, it displays the glory of Christ which is not perceived by all. There were some who saw all of these things which were mentioned. They saw His ministry. They even saw the, the, the risen Christ and yet they did not believe. And Jesus had performed a miracle, a sign. He revealed His glory. But not everyone received it. Only His elect disciples put their faith in Him. The miracle itself did not uncover the glory of Christ for those who saw it. But their eyes of faith had to be opened. They had to see the glory which revealed in the sign. This is how some could see and yet were blind. This is how some could hear and yet were deaf. Because physical eyes and physical ears are not enough. They needed to have spiritual eyes. They needed to have spiritual eyes which are opened in order to see the display of the glory of the incarnate Word. Only those who were given the gift of faith saw the glory of God, which was full of grace and truth. The eternal Word has taken on flesh. He pitched His tabernacle among us. He has made us His people who have seen His glory. He has opened our eyes to the realities of Christ our Savior. Is this not the most glorious of truths? Christ, your Redeemer, has come. And He came to save sinners such as you and me. word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent. This beloved congregation is the wonder, the real wonder of Christmas, isn't it? This is the contemplation of our hearts as we consider the incredible truth 
that the eternal creator God took on flesh so that he could rescue you and me and to make us his people. This was his intention and this was his promise from the very beginning. We've seen this as we've studied Genesis. We've seen it again the last few weeks as we've been looking at Isaiah. God made His covenant with His people with the promise of saving them by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, dear Christian, look to the Savior of the world who was born to die so that you and I may live. Trust and rest on Him for your salvation. Repent of your sins. Turn from the wickedness of your life. Turn again to Christ. By faith in Him, Jesus takes away your sin. He paid the penalty, and He gives to you His perfect righteousness. This, beloved, is the greatest gift which has ever been given. And it is a true gift. It is a bona fide gift. It is truly free. Isaiah 52 says, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. And you and I have nothing to add to our salvation. We believe and we trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the marvelous promises of it. We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We thank you that our Savior came into this world to save sinners such as us. That were it not for your your grace, we would have nothing. We would be lost forever. And so we were humbled, O God. We're humbled that you condescended yourself to take on flesh, to die as a sacrifice for your people so that we, who have received, who believe in your name, can have life. And we thank you that we receive because you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And that salvation, even our faith, even our receiving is a gift from you. Thank you, God. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May your name be glorified. May the words of our lips be to your praise, not only on this day, but every day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.